0: Good morning. Uh, my name is Wes, one of the pastors here. I'm excited now to invite you to join with me as we do what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, a Bible app, anything like that with you, if you would turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 12 and beginning at verse 38. Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38, whenever you found that, if you are able, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew writes this, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, this is Jesus, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly. Uh, just ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God. I ask you to come now, illumine the preaching of your word. I pray that you would break down every barrier, every hindrance to what you want to accomplish through your word. You say that when you send it out, this word, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. And I'm asking you, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us, whatever it is. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, I've made no secret of the fact over the years that uh, my wife and I, we are massive fans of legal courtroom dramas. That's just our, our jam. We, we love these things, whether it's like a, a Netflix series or some of the like, classics of Modern Center. like Get us one of those shows, bowl of buttered popcorn, and, and that's a good night for us. Uh, we love that. Um, And as it comes to or as it relates to what we would say maybe like real life legal drama, I don't know if it's the same for you, but my TikTok and Instagram feeds have just been like packed full of clips from the recent uh, defamation trial, Johnny Depp and his ex-wife Amber Heard, just like it's overwhelmed with that, which makes me feel like maybe, maybe we may not be the only ones who have this particular fascination with courtroom drama. It may be a thing for others as well. And I tried to pinpoint exactly like what it is that's so captivating about it. What, what, what is it that draws us to this genre so much? And for me, what I usually keep coming back to is at least three things. First of all, there's the puzzle aspect. Sort of just like there's the question on the table and, and how, how are we going to solve that? How are we going to decide who's right and who's guilty and innocent? There's the suspense aspect when you come down to like, okay, well, are they going to be able to solve the problem in time? Will they have the right evidence to present, the right witnesses to come? And then lastly, the struggle aspect. Really what amounts to like two gladiators going at it in the arena, and yet instead of swords and shields, arguments, lines of questioning are wielded by well-dressed combatants. Uh, Instead of brute strength, powerful bodies of evidence are presented by both combatants in order to determine which side will be victorious. And I don't know, maybe... Maybe you don't like that kind of stuff. Maybe that's not at all what you're interested in or even half as interested as we are. But I bring it up because if you look at what we've already covered already in uh, chapter 12 uh, leading up till today and certainly what we're going to cover today in our passage, what you see is that since the moment Jesus first offered rest to the weary and heavy laden, back in chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus has had none. He has had no rest, as he has just endured a, 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 a deluge, just been inundated with accusations after accusations, essentially being involved in what looks like an extended court trial between himself and the religious rulers of his day. So if you look back, first of all, beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is on trial for his understanding of the Sabbath. Then last week, we talked about Jesus. He's on trial for like whether or not it's God or the devil that's empowering his kingdom work. And now today in our passage, Jesus continues to be put on trial here as it relates to his, the credibility of his claims to have come from God. So it's just on and on and on. And what's so interesting when you look at chapter 12 as a whole is you start to see actually all the same elements that make a legal drama so interesting. You've got the puzzle, you've got the suspense, you've got the, the, the struggle aspect, really kind of like a theological struggle taking place here. And what I find so encouraging in faith building when you look at all that all together in chapter 12 is that with every charge, with every challenge that's brought against Jesus, he defends himself easily and decisively in a way that both like, simultaneously leaves his, his accusers dumbfounded and, and aggravated. Just like, oh, I can't beat this guy. But all that being said, when it comes to understanding why looking at this passage matters so much for us still today, I think what it comes down to is that it has less to do with watching Jesus decimate yet another unfounded accusation that's brought against him, and far more to do with this, far more to do with the pattern of litigation that you and I continue to subject Jesus to ourselves right up until this very day a pattern of putting Jesus on trial again every time some new impossible circumstance presents itself, every time Jesus doesn't meet my expectations of how I think life should go, Jesus is immediately put on trial again in our own hearts and lives. I think whatever else we say about our passage today, I think that's the issue we need to deal with by the end. Because it's all well and good to, you know, stand there and shake our heads at these kind of continued accusations of the Pharisees and the religious rulers, again and again, they're constantly accusing Jesus. We can be like, come on, guys. Ignoring the fact that we do the exact same thing ourselves. Fortunately, the good news is that for the religious rulers then, as well as for you and I today, what Jesus offers in our passage today is irrefutable evidence. As well as he even drops in a few surprise witnesses in order to demonstrate for all time and beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, that he has, in fact, come from God. Which means we can trust his judgments. And we can know that he speaks with all the authority of heaven itself. So let's dig into this together. Let's look at this. If you've closed your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, but you open it again to this passage, Matthew 12, 38, enter into this passage, come with me into this, follow along, as Jesus presents his case now, presents his case before the jury, which will put both our judgments of his divine authority, as well as our accusations of his goodness, at last to rest. Okay, so let's look first of all at irrefutable evidence. Irrefutable evidence. In the context of Jesus even being asked to offer any evidence at all, you see in verse 38 of our passage. Look with me there. uh, Matthew tells us this. Then the scribes, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Which, I mean, given all the, the incredible, truly miraculous signs we've already seen Jesus accomplish up until this point, seems like such a strange, crazy question to even ask him. I mean, if I'm Jesus here in this moment, I'm just like, oh. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are late to the party or may- maybe follow up with some of your buddies who were there for like all the miracles that I've already done. They'll-, they'll get you up to speed. But if you look at what Jesus' actual response is, I mean, that's how I'd respond. If you look at Jesus' response there in verse 39, we begin to see that there may be more to the question than what we can uh, initially see just by looking at it. Look at Verse 39. Jesus says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. He's cutting it off. He's like, no, there's going to be no sign given. And yeah, I suppose we could conclude Jesus is just fed up. He's fed up with all their persistent testing, endless questioning, and so he's just shutting them down right here in the moment. He's just like, no, no, sorry, that's not how this works. I'm not a trick pony that just performs on command here. No, we're not going to be doing that. And of course, that's right, he isn't. And yet, when you read on in the rest of Matthew's Gospel, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, you see he does, though. He still performs all kinds of miracles. Uh, everything from like healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead. So he does perform more signs. So clearly, both the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus, all together, they mean something different when they're talking about a sign, when they're talking about it. So what are they talking about? Well, D.A. Carson is helpful in understanding exactly what it is the Pharisees were asking for when he says this. He says, a sign was usually some miraculous token to be fulfilled quickly or at once to confirm a prophecy. <clears throat> they, they, they were not asking for just another miracle, since they had already persuaded themselves that at least some of those Jesus had performed were of demonic agency. And F.D. Bruner adds this, a sign was divine documentation that a person spoke for God. The usual difference between a sign and a miracle was that signs came immediately from heaven while miracles happened immediately, that is, through human agency on earth. That's kind of the main difference between the two things. So think about this. Think about God descending on Mount Sinai in smoke and fire as he's delivering the Ten Commandments to confirm that Moses is the one that actually speaks for him. Think about uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel when God sends the fire from heaven to consume his offering proving that he is the one true God and that Elijah speaks for him. That's what they're asking for. That's the kind of sign that, that the, uh, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, that, that they're asking for, essentially saying to Jesus, yeah, you know, we, know we, we know you've produced some miracles over the last little while. We're, we're looking into those. We're looking into the validity of those things. But, but what we want to see right now is a sign from heaven, not you, a sign confirming you That's going to prove for all time, without a shadow of a doubt, that your claim to be from God is legitimate. That's really what they're asking for, and Jesus knows that's what they're asking for, which is why he immediately responds to say, it is an evil and adulterous generation, uh, really a spiritually adulterous, a, a generation that has abandoned faithfulness to God, that seeks for a sign like this, that seeks for other proofs beyond the mountain of evidence Jesus has already given that he is, in fact, who he says he is. Which is why Jesus follows with the promise, no sign will be given. No sign will be given. But I think it's essential to note, not because no sign can be given or could be given, because as we see, Jesus goes on here right now to say, he describes this sign of Jonah that will be a divine sign given, but only that no sign is going to be given here at the kind of beck and call of his prosecutors. He's like, no, that's not how this works. So what is it? What is this sign, this irrefutable evidence that Jesus is going to give that will corroborate his claim to be from God? As he says there, the last part of verse 39, it's this sign of the prophet Jonah. That's the the one sign that's going to be given. Now, what is that all about? Well, we don't have time to dive into the whole story of Jonah this morning, like deal with all the theological, philosophical, kind of logistical Challenges of that story, but just briefly, just to kind of get us all on the same page here so we kind of know where we're all coming from here. Very quickly, God calls prophet Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and call them to repentance. Jonah says, no way, I hate those people. I want nothing to do with them. They're wicked, I'm not going, and pass. So he sails in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh, God sends a huge storm that threatens to sink the boat, kill everybody. Jonah realizes this this storm is from God, tells them, you'll be saved if you throw me overboard. Reluctantly, reluctantly, they, they submit to his request, throw him over the side, and after which two things happen. One, the storm dies down immediately. And Jonah, rather than drowning, is swallowed by a massive fish, as the story goes. And after three days and nights in the belly of this massive fish, Jonah repents of his disobedience. He turns to God. He's vomited up on the beach by the fish and then goes to Nineveh as he was originally called to go. The scribes and the Pharisees, they would have known this story. They would have known it well. They, they saw Jonah, revered him as one of God's prophets. But as you see in verse 40... What Jesus does now is he takes the details of Jonah's story and applies them to this sign, to describe this sign that's going to be given that will corroborate for all people his legitimacy and his claims to have come from God. You see there, he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what's the sign that he's pointing to? It's pointing to his Death and resurrection on the third day. Jesus says that's the sign, the only sign that will be given to corroborate who I am. Now as it relates to the story of Jonah himself, D.A. Carson adds this. This is helpful. He says, it's the sign that Jonah himself is, not some sign that was given or presented by him. That understanding accepts the view that the Ninevites learned what had happened to Jonah and how he had gotten to their city. Thus, Jonah himself served as a sign to the Ninevites, for he appeared to them as one who had been delivered from certain death, which is precisely what Jesus himself will be as he walks out of the tomb three days after being crucified. He'll be a living representation of the fact that he's been delivered from certain death, just as Jonah was. And we've talked about this a lot over the years as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. That that being the one sign, beyond anything else Jesus taught, any of the other miracles he did, anything. The resurrection being like the one sign upon which everything Jesus said and did hangs. Everything rises and falls on the fact, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? The Apostle Paul says as much there in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage maybe you know. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ is not being raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But now look, here we have Jesus himself stating the very same thing, namely that his resurrection from the dead on the third day is the one sign, the one irrefutable proof that gives evidence that he is who he said he was and that his death accomplished what he said it accomplished for us. The resurrection is the one thing that does that. man, That's an incredible claim. When you think about all the, all, the things, all the other incredible things Jesus taught, the way he lived his life, the incredible miracles that he performed, all these incredible things, walking on water, raising people from the dead, and yet, according to Jesus himself, none of that matters. None of that is to be believed or relied on if the resurrection isn't true. That's a big claim. That the bodily resurrection of Jesus on the third day, this sign of Jonah, is the one divine proof from heaven and the thing that gives meaning and purpose to everything else Jesus said and did. That's an incredible claim. Which means, first of all, as it relates to our own prosecution and litigation of Jesus every time some new crisis presents itself, every time uh, your hopes and expectations of Jesus are disappointed, every time uh, the truth of God's word comes into conflict with whatever happens to be the truth that the world thinks is the truth today, every time that happens and we're tempted to immediately place Jesus back on trial, immediately to doubt his wisdom, his goodness, his power, again, the very first question that we need to ask ourselves in that moment is not, God, have you stopped loving me? Have you abandoned me and given up on me? Am I being punished for some disobedience? God, uh, you know, is is your word just not compatible anymore with today, today's modern-day society? No. The question we need to ask ourselves first is, did Jesus actually rise from the dead three days after being killed? Did that really happen? Is the bodily resurrection from Jesus a historical fact? Or is that just a nice story we like to tell ourselves to feel better? An inspiring story of coming back. Which is it? Because don't you see, how you answer that question matters for everything. It matters for every doubt you have, every prosecution, every question that we might bring against Jesus in our pain and in our fear. Because if the answer is yes... Yeah, I, I, believe, I wasn't there, but I trust the evidence. I believe the resurrection is true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Then that is the divine sign from heaven. That's the smoke on the mountain. That's the fire from heaven. That is the irrefutable evidence that Jesus is who he said he was, which means that then he can be trusted. It means he, he needs to be obeyed. He needs to be worshiped. He needs to be honored above everything else in your life. And if he didn't rise, well, then who cares what Jesus did? Who cares what Jesus said about anything in the end? Because it's not true. He's not who he said he was. It doesn't matter. And then secondly, as it relates to other people's prosecution and litigation of Jesus, which... You will undoubtedly experience and be drawn into and be a part of it as soon as you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. I believe the resurrection of Jesus needs to be the one sign to which we continually return in our response to their questioning, in our response to their cross-examination of Jesus. I love this. F.D. Bruner said it so well. He said, In conversation with those outside the faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus is to be a Christian's single piece of Documentation. They're one claim of evidence. They're one sensation. They're not to seek other signs from heaven, other arguments or proofs from science, apologetics. The death and resurrection of Jesus is God's once for all and perpetual sensation. God will do one impressive thing in this world, not to please the sensationalists, but to show all humanity his approval of his son. He will raise the executed Jesus from the dead. And I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe, maybe you're in a place where you're exploring faith and, and checking out Christianity and, and seeing what's this all about. That, that exploration brings all kinds of questions, and they're good and they're right. And I think the scriptures can stand up to those questions. But this is ultimately the first question you need to ask yourself. All the other questions, great. Let's get to that. But I think this is where you need to start as well. Because if the resurrection is true, then you got to deal with everything else Jesus said and did. If he didn't rise, who cares what he said about that issue or this? It doesn't matter. So start with the resurrection. Did that actually happen? And then we can talk about all the other questions you have, to. Okay, so that's the irrefutable evidence of the resurrection. This attested to elsewhere in Scripture, given here by Jesus himself, That that, that Jesus' claim to divine origin was true that he really was who he said he was. Now, again, we can have a conversation about whether or not the resurrection actually happened, whether that sign happened. Let's talk about the evidence for that. Let's, let's have that conversation. And no, that's not at all to say that believing in Jesus' resurrection means we're never going to have any doubts or questions again. Of course, yes, you will. So will I only to say that the resurrection is God's stated divine sign from heaven, and if it did happen, provides irrefutable evidence of Jesus' divine claims, of everything else he said and did. But rather than just leave it there, which, I mean, Jesus would have been totally easily justified in doing, that that's, that's more than enough. It's as though talking about Jonah kind of twigs a memory for Jesus, and he's like, yeah, you know, actually speaking of Jonah... And he, so he goes on here to provide two surprise witnesses in this trial before his religious uh, prosecutors here, before he rests his case. So that's what I want to look at last here is Jesus' surprise witnesses. Surprise witnesses. And we'll get to why they're surprising in a moment, but first let's just look at who they are. Look at verse 41 and 42. Jesus calls to the stand two surprise witnesses, the people of Nineveh Those were the people that Jonah had eventually gone and preached to. And the queen of the south, which most commentators agree is the queen of Sheba, that we read about in 1 Kings, who traveled from the ends of the earth to come and sit under the wisdom of Solomon. These two witnesses he brings forward. And what you see in both cases is Jesus highlighting the way Gentile listeners responded positively. Uh, In the case of the people of Nineveh, even responded with repentance and dust and ashes, Uh, they responded positively to these human agents of God's wisdom and grace. That is, they recognized the divine origin of the messages of both Jonah and Solomon, and they responded to those messages as such. And if you look again at these verses, what Jesus says is that because of the way they responded to Jonah and to Solomon, the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba will actually rise up at the final judgment and condemn the people of this generation that Jesus is speaking to. Why? Why? Well, because as Jesus plainly says in reference to both these surprise witnesses, something greater than Jonah is here right now. Something greater than Solomon is here right in your midst. And actually, if you remember from two weeks ago, Jesus is being questioned about his uh, understanding of the Sabbath. He says something greater than the temple is here. What in the world does he mean by that? What do you mean greater? Well, Very simple. Let's start with the temple. The temple was a physical place where people traveled, right, in order to meet with God, in order to receive atonement for their sins. But now here, in the coming of Jesus, here was God himself coming to meet with his people and to provide atonement for them for all time. Something greater than the temple is here. With Jonah, you had a prophet, a human prophet, bringing a message from God, speaking a word of judgment and calling people to repentance. But here with Jesus, you have God himself. You have the word himself coming and speaking, a message of forgiveness, a message of restoration for all who will turn in faith to him. Lastly, King Solomon. Uh, Solomon had come to be really identified synonymously with wisdom from God. And yet here... Although the queen of Sheba had traveled from miles to sit under this human teacher, here you have the wisdom of God himself in the flesh. Something greater than the temple, something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon, it's here right now in front of you. And yet in each case, although something infinitely greater than each one of these witnesses was standing in their very midst, rather than recognizing him as from God and responding to him as such, This generation had remained hardened, they'd remained skeptical, they'd remained rejecting of Jesus so that he remained perpetually on trial, never just received as the vastly superior witness that he was. But here's the thing, what made each of these witnesses surprising, I mean, the temple was hard for them to accept, but what made those two witnesses of the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba surprising in particular is that they were Gentiles. That is, they were those who were considered rejected by God outside of the covenant relationship with Israel that God had made with the people of Israel. That's what made them surprising. Because... In the minds of the people of Israel, at the final judgment, that was when God's people were going to rise up and stand here on God's team, and they were going to pronounce judgment on the Gentiles, those who had rejected God and not submitted to him. But now look here, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Actually, at the final judgment, it's not going to be you standing up condemning the Gentiles. These Gentiles are going to be called to the witness stand, and they will testify against you. As Leon Morris helpfully adds, not that the Gentiles will issue edicts in the manner of judges, but that long ago their conduct had set a standard that the current generation should have attained to, but did not. That's why they stand up and judge them. And Man, I'm sure you can just imagine how a Jewish audience in general would have responded to Jesus' words here, let alone the scribes and the Pharisees who saw themselves not as just judges of the Gentiles one day, they saw them as present judges over everyone else around them who couldn't obey the law of God quite as well as they did. They saw themselves as the judges. To be told those outside the covenant relationship with God, those Gentile dogs, would rise up at the last judgment and condemn them. (laughs) You can imagine how they must have responded to that. But far beyond their own response... Think about your own life for a second. Think about about our church gathering. As it relates to Jesus' words here, it honestly makes me wonder, who is it that will rise up one day and condemn me? Who are the witnesses that will rise up one day and condemn us in light of the far greater revelation of God that we presently enjoy than they ever have? Think about the saints throughout the Old Testament, pre-coming of Jesus, who had nothing more than the promise of Jesus' coming to put all their faith and hope in God for. Things concerning salvation and Jesus' coming, for which Peter says, "The, the prophets carefully searched and inquired into which angels longed to look. Whereas we have today the historical reality of Jesus coming, that he has come. He has accomplished everything that he said. And yet, when it comes to celebrations like Christmas, Advent, Easter, we kind of still look at them now with kind of like yawning indifference. Like, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus came. When they're like, we were longing for that day. We were longing to see that day. well, How can you... How can you look at it this way? To, to the saints throughout the New Testament period, right up until around the 14th century, who had either no written record of the life and work of Jesus to, to refer to, or couldn't read the scriptures themselves, or had no scriptures in their own language to read. Where today, we have the complete canon of scripture in our pocket. At the swipe of a screen, we have access to the entire word of God right at our disposal, and yet how often, do we make use of this far greater revelation? To the saints who will gather this very day in small secret gatherings or in the shells of bombed-out churches because the place where they live right now, gathering to worship is illegal. It's forbidden. Where for us in the West, although gathering costs us virtually nothing in comparison, taking advantage of the privilege of doing this, gathering together as God's people, we treat more like a chore where we weekly decide if we have, oh, do I have the energy to make use of that or to partake in that? Who are the witnesses that will rise up at the last judgment and condemn us? Who will condemn you and condemn me? Who are they? And yeah, I get it, yes. Paul says, Romans 8, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, right. But still... Who are the witnesses that are going to rise up one day and testify against us and we'll we'll feel embarrassed? We'll feel ashamed, even if we don't stand truly condemned for the faithlessness in light of the far greater revelation that was available to us. What are we doing with the infinitely greater witness that we have in front of us right now? I said as we began this morning, Much of chapter 12 reads like a courtroom drama as Jesus endures accusation after accusation from the religious rulers of his day. But what I also said was that what makes chapter 12 really relevant for us still today is not solely watching Jesus easily handle the litigations of his religiously developed prosecutors. It's in acknowledging and seeking to identify how and where we do the exact same thing to Jesus ourselves today. That's really the point of what I think is being pointed to for us. As I often say that when I'm speaking to you, and honestly I need to keep reminding myself of the exact same thing, Jesus shouldn't have to start at zero all the time. Jesus shouldn't have to start at zero every time a new crisis presents itself. Jesus shouldn't have to start at zero every time he has a different plan for your life than the perfect plan you'd already made for yourself. You shouldn't have to go back and start from zero again, and yet far too often Jesus is immediately placed back on the witness stand, immediately placed back on trial the moment any of those things happens and somehow is expected to, to prove his faithfulness, prove his superior wisdom with regards to our lives again as though we hadn't already done that a million times over in a million different ways. Which is why, rather than being overly simplistic in any sense of the word, I I find Jesus' response to his prosecutors in our passage today to be hugely clarifying and profound. It's as if in his overwhelming grace and, and compassion for us, Jesus has essentially just said, let me just make this incredibly easy for you. Let me just make it easy for you. Rather than trying to formulate a chart of past evidence that you need to compare against your present circumstances and decide again if, if, if I'm trustworthy, decide again, if I'm sovereign and I know what I'm doing, let me just boil it down to one question. Is the resurrection a historical fact or a bedtime story you tell yourself to feel better? Am, am I your risen, resurrected Savior alive and ruling in heaven today, or am I not? He's like, let me just boil it all down to that for you. I'll make it easy. Because as we've seen now in answering that one question, you're then confronted with both the reality of Jesus' identity as well as really you're, you're confronted with the message of the gospel itself. That, that because of our sin, we remained separated from God under His just judgment against sin, and therefore we needed a Savior. And then in coming to earth, dying in our place, being raised to life on the third day, proving for all eternity that he was that Savior and that he had accomplished our salvation. We're confronted with that every time we answer that simple question. So yes, yes, we have God's word to guide us, which includes all of his his teaching. It includes a record of God's faithfulness throughout all human history, from creation all the way to the end of time. We have our experience of new life in Christ, where where again and again we have evidence of, of his work in our own lives, evidence of his work within our church. And yet, something greater than all of these is here. Jesus, our risen and resurrected Savior, who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and then was raised to life, never to die again, so that now by his Spirit living in us, until faith at last becomes sight, we might just learn to trust him and to trust his leading in our lives and, and avoid, move away from the temptation that we all face all the time to a forgetful, really dishonoring prosecution of Jesus every time our expectations of what we think is best are disappointed. We'll never do that without his help. So God, Grant us your spirit, grant us your life. Grant us the the faithfulness and, and the power of this one question to over time learn more and more to put this prosecution of you to rest. Amen.